Welcome back to the Power Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, I'm really happy to have with us Jackie Scaramella. Jackie is a sports dietitian for Team USA and she works both on the Olympic and the Paralympic side. Her Paralympic sports that she currently works with are para ice hockey, sit volleyball and para archery. So welcome to the podcast, Jackie. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. It's been a while since I've you know, been wanting to get you on this podcast for a while, but you're so busy. <laughs> yeah, right back at you, Liz, uh, you know, when you're not sailing, sailing around. <laughs> so Jackie, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into working with parasports? Yeah, so always, you know, been very kind of headstrong about knowing that I wanted to become a sport dietitian and started supporting the able-bodied sports on the Olympic side, volleyball, water polo. And then after the Rio games ended up moving down to San Diego, where we have a training site for both Olympic and Paralympic athletes and started supporting rugby out there and archery as well. And then obviously had a little bit more connection time with you. And, you know, as you were building out the para sports nutrition department, certainly, uh, I believe you had been there for at least a year at that point. And then so obviously the demand had grown and the needs were well known at that point. And I was just very interested in learning more about the para space and adaptive athletes and the unique considerations there and was lucky enough to be afforded the opportunity to uh, learn under you and get some really great experience working with para-athletes and some different sports. And it's been one of my great passions of my career thus far. So I'm very happy to be continuing in this space. Yeah, so it's been, what, six, seven years now that you've been working with some... Seven yeah. years. Yeah, I think I started in 2015. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Crazy. <laughs> it's gone very... I know, right? I know, right? <laughs> yeah. So when you first started working with parasports, what were some of the nutrition things that you found challenging or surprising? I think the biggest one was just, you know, how, how do I approach this as a dietitian and what are some of the things I can draw upon from my experience in able-bodied athletes? And then what are some of the things that might be a lot more unique? And I think the biggest one is a lot of the uh, clinical application that comes a lot more readily on the parasite and certainly all of the different impairment types and disabilities, you know, they're not all just across the board. Okay. You have cerebral palsy. It looks like this. You have a spinal cord injury. It looks like this. You have an amputation. It looks like this, right? So <laughs> really talking to each of the individual athletes and better understanding the nuances of their disability and how it affects them. And they've obviously have learned over the years, some things that have worked and other things that don't. And so um, it's really just understanding how their impairment type has maybe made it challenging for them in certain areas. And, and what are those areas? And where do I think I can help them and we can kind of work together on this and, and troubleshoot it, you know, mm -hmm. and where are some of the things that I might be able to help them and make them aware of, of, of where I think they could, they could do better. Yeah. Okay. And so can you give us a little bit of background say, we'll go through each sport one by one. Uh, we've definitely covered sit volley with 
Bill and Michelle in terms of what the sport looks like. So why don't we start with sit volley? What are some of the unique aspects of sit volley from a nutrition perspective? Yeah, so if we if we think of the majority of the athletes are are amputees and some will have limb deficiencies and that are congenital and some are obviously traumatic. And so thinking also about the needs of the sport, right? It's it's indoor sport mm-hmm. and while you'd think that hopefully it's climate controlled, a lot of times they're playing in kind of makeshift courts and stadiums where sometimes it's not climate controlled. And so actually um, hydration can be a big thing for them Mm -hmm. as well. And certainly during training camps, when they're training four plus hours a day, it's a, it's a big focus that we've had. And if, if they're going to have periods of rest in between either training sets or competition, how are we managing these hydration needs? We have athletes who it obviously costs a lot of energy for them if they have their leg off to move from one court all the way over to maybe where their water bottle is or the rest of their gear is. So mm-hmm. how can we maybe change up their access to fluid to really encourage them to, to make sure they're drinking and hydrating throughout not only competition, but also training when their uh, hydration needs are, are quite high. And then thinking about just bone health for them, right, as amputee athletes. So we've tried to do a good job of screening them for, you know, not just their calcium intake, but also their vitamin D status on a yearly basis. And Mm -hmm. the sitting volleyball staff has really been great in supporting this initiative and, and helping us cover the cost of supplementation. But it's certainly... A topic I found across both able-bodied and para-sport that really takes a lot of reinforcement on the education and importance of why it's so critical for them, mm-hmm. as well as you know that re-education throughout the season to to check on compliance of of if we're taking our vitamin D supplements and hey have we been trying to get in our calcium rich sources of food. So I found over the years it's that consistent kind of repetition of the hydration testing maybe doing some sweat rate testing with them so they can understand their individual needs and same thing on the vitamin D side as well. Yep. And so can you give us a bit of a rough idea of what their sweat rates are like? Are they similar to other indoor female sports? Yes, I would definitely say so. Of course, there's, you know, individual and genetic variation. Also, which athletes might have more court time Mm -hmm. than others certainly is going to affect that output as well. But we've been able to do sweat rate testing several times. And, you know, we've seen, again, it's an indoor, supposedly climate controlled sport, but we've been able to see some some pretty big differences based on the intensity Mm -hmm. of like simulating a game like scenario versus maybe a little bit of a lower key training session, a skill based focus session. And then we have our players who get maybe a lot more playing time. And then we have those that are just heavier sweaters. And so by helping identify that for them and doing some repeated measures in order to give them some specific feedback on how we can help improve their replenishment and giving them a better idea of like, okay, here's your water bottle. Here's how many ounces it holds. So if if you lose this much on average in this kind of typical session or, or during a game, how can we help meet that deficit a little bit better? How many water bottles would that take? And, and certainly at what point do we need to really introduce some electrolytes here? And what does that look like for you versus this other athlete who maybe doesn't sweat quite as much? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
you've had I, I guess you work predominantly with females in in sit volleyball it's mm-hmm. a it's the women's team that you work with and I believe that there's been some pregnancies and you know with players who are still on the national team how's that experience been for you yeah it's a great question I guess I'll start from the the I guess the whole female athlete approach one really cool initiative that I've been really happy to collaborate on with our sports psychologists over the years. We've, we've had a couple different ones working with that program since I've been there, but we've tried to do some collaborative sessions around relative energy deficiency in sport mm-hmm. uh, and low energy availability and some education around their menstrual cycle and different stages and how that might be affected based on some hormonal changes to their bodies and some that have had uh, courses of chemo treatment over time and what that might do to their reproductive systems as well. And Mm -hmm. just trying to have a a space where we talk about it and we normalize it more and we're providing better education around it as well as the body image piece, because Mm -hmm. certainly as we're well aware, obviously it doesn't just apply to female athletes, but around body image, not just for our female athletes, but also being an athlete with a disability, right, brings a whole nother element to that equation as well. And, and so yeah. recognizing that, hearing from the athletes around that space and, and not just the body image around performance, but also as a whole person and, and how their disability has affected them in that over time. So mm-hmm. I think that's been one of the really great areas we've been able to continually provide education and some really good discussions around. And we're also working with a uh, menstrual cycle tracking and monitoring app to, mm-hmm. again, provide them further education, help them identify trends and potentially help them relieve certain symptoms by reinforcing certain nutrients at, at different times in the cycle. So I guess that's one one side kind of tangent from your first question. Well, can, can, we, and yeah. can we stay on that? Sure. Um, because I'm really interested in, you work with women's rugby as well. So you've got two female teams. Yes. Do you think that there is a big difference with the body image side of things? I think across the board, what I've seen, if we're just talking strictly female athlete, no. We certainly see there's a lot of challenges in that space. And it definitely depends a lot too culturally mm-hmm. in their environments. Certainly in rugby, uh, we have more of the Pacific Islander cultures, which which also can have a, a different thought process around body image and food and relationships with those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of them are reflections of the environments, maybe the homes that they've grown up in and uh, their integration at what point in time in sport and how Mm -hmm. coaches and other staff members have maybe made comments around their weight or have tried to change what they were doing or wanted them to manipulate their body composition to achieve a certain goal. And so I certainly think there are a ton of similarities between both, Mm -hmm. but I do think what I've seen Um, And my experience has been is that those female athletes with disabilities also have another added dimension that's affected them a lot uh, differently as well. And and certainly adds another almost exacerbation to kind of uh, the mental impact of how they view their bodies and their their body image and their self-esteem around it. And it's also been really nice to see changes working with this team for, you know, over seven years now, I've been able to see a lot of these athletes 
grow up. And like you said, now we're, we have multiple athletes who have had kids or are currently pregnant. Mm. And I think that's one of the, the greatest things about being able to support a team for so long is those relationships you're able to develop and be able to see those athletes grow as a whole person throughout their life cycle and mm. just changes how you support them. Right. And the, the priorities of, of what you're, nutrition approach with them might change and your interventions might change yeah yeah cool so with the pregnancy side of things did you have any specific nutrition interventions that you like to kind of play interplay with that either from their pre-pregnancy or their return to play post birth yeah, you know, the majority was just around making sure they're getting adequate calories for the increase in, you know, supporting, right, the growth and changes of their body, but also mm-hmm. having to support then a, a growing human inside of them, but also realizing that they're changing in the amount of energy they're expending from sport too. Yeah. So, you know, what does that look like? What changes the composition? Do we need to manage carbohydrate intake a little bit differently? Mm-hmm. What kind of nutrients are we uh, changing and increasing? And and how does that, you know, not being coming to training camps and, and being more responsible, maybe if they're not in resident training anymore, what does that change to their typical food choices and access and options? Mm-hmm. And are they cooking more for themselves and, and at home more? And how can we help them come up with some kind of plans throughout the week to help support what they're doing. Um, Because I think one of the other really unique things of para-athletes is most of them are working part-time or full-time, right? And training part-time or full-time. So that's another pretty big difference between um, our able-bodied elite athletes who many can afford to support themselves solely from their uh, sport contracts, whereas Mm -hmm. our para-athletes are you know, juggling work as well as training and sometimes parenting on top of that too. Mm. Yeah, it's a pretty heavy load. And then if they're asked to travel to training camps on top of all of that, it's not always the easiest easiest aspect to, to manage. Yeah, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always very impressed with our, our moms and dads um, in this space for sure. Mm. And then uh, those that are working full-time and, and give up essentially all of their time off and holidays, their vacation time. Yeah. To, it's to spent play this training. Sport. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. For competing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so let's then maybe contrast that with para ice hockey, commonly known as sled hockey. Um, I know the official term is now para ice hockey, <laughs> but you know, with sled hockey. So your sled hockey team is all male, correct? Yeah. Correct. All male. They're, uh, I've had some interactions with our development team over the years when there have been uh, coexisting camps, mm-hmm. and there used to be a female athlete before there was a, a female USA sled hockey team developed, and, and she used to play with the boys, which is which was always great. Mm-hmm. But now there is a women's USA sled hockey team. However, there's not enough teams internationally for them to really compete mm-hmm. uh, often and competitively. So yes, the the um, para ice hockey team for us is all is all males. Yeah, and and so what what impairments are you dealing with on your para ice hockey team? 
Yeah, again, mostly amputees. We do have some spinal cord injuries, but um, I would say, you know, 80% are either unilateral or bilateral amputees. We do have a lot of veterans on the team too. So I think it's, it's also just, you know, not just considering the impairment and how that might change the uh, impacts of their nutrition or the interventions, but also besides like, what are they doing outside of this? Or maybe where, where did this impairment take place? Was it congenital? Was it trauma? Yeah. Or was it a disease or an illness? And so with our sled hockey guys, many of them are veterans, obviously sled hockey is already a contact sport. So, we, you know, high trauma and mm-hmm. we already have higher, higher risk for concussions. So brain health becomes a really big education tool that we've continued to work on over the years. And and certainly a lot of them are coming in already uh, with a history of concussions around their military service as well. Mm. And they might also have some impairments in sleep and, you know, how, how that might affect their recovery and other things we, we really need to consider with um, how to prepare them best to be as sharp as they can be, as as recovered as they can be. Because if we think of the logistics of ice hockey, right, or para-ice hockey, they're sitting in a sled, you know, so there's there's no lower body use at all. So they're they're using their upper bodies and mm-hmm. for for sport and a lot of them to mobilize around too, if there's somebody who gets around in a wheelchair and um, and they're also lifting on top of this. So there's a lot of overuse injury yeah. as well with the sport. And and same goes for sitting volleyball as well. And so, you know, I guess the bigger difference with sitting volleyball is that when they're moving around on the on the court, they're actually able to move all components of their body. Whereas with sled hockey, they they really are they they're strapped into the sled. So it's all from the from the waist up, yep. the movement patterns in the sled. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so with them, in terms of their nutritional demands, you also have the fact that they're on ice mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to an, an indoor uh, arena. Have you done some sweat rate analysis on on them and, and how does that compare in terms of, you know, is, is it lower or is it actually similar to Sipoli because you're actually dealing with males who have a tendency to have higher sweat rates per unit body mass anyway? Yeah, I mean, we have done some sweat rate recently on them, which has been really great. And um, it's helped us really provide some changes to even some of our veteran athletes who who may think they have everything dialed in at this point, right? So Mm -hmm. yeah, the other component that, you know, considering, yes, it's in a cool ice environment, but they're wearing protective equipment too, right? So mm-hmm. they're they're effectively insulated, very insulated as they're going around um, in a very high intensity start and stop sport. Yep. So we do see quite a bit of sweat rate losses in them, pretty, pretty considerable. And then depending on their disability, what kind of surface area do they have to draw from to help dissipate that heat? Mm-hmm. And then we do see in some of our spinal cord injured sled hockey guys that we have significantly lower sweat rates, right? And yeah. we have some of them who, you know, they know right away, like they struggle with heat. I remember um, when I had first started working with the team, we had one guy who used to wear less pads because he would get so overheated 
and didn't know how to manage it appropriately. Mm -hmm. So he was essentially putting himself at higher risk for, for injury by wearing less pads just to, to help, you know, insulate himself less. So he did. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we talked about some cooling strategies there because, you know, you obviously don't want to fluid overload them if it's, if it's more of a cooling temperature regulation issue and not as much of a sweat issue. Mm -hmm. So it's been really, really great to be able to, to help in some of those kind of unique situations. So can you tell us a little bit more? So what, what was the, what did you find the most successful with that type of athletes where their spinal cord injury is limiting their sweat production and, and they're overheating? What was the most successful strategy did you find? Yeah, the, the biggest thing was just, you know, can we get some extra cold fluids in him before any kind of training session. And mm-hmm. then um, if we're talking about a game scenario before the game, so we're, we're doing a pre-cooling and then what's really nice in a, in a game scenario, which is quite different than when they're training for two hours consecutively on the ice is, you know, they have intermission, they have period breaks. So we, we can mm-hmm. get him some more cooling, some really cold kind of, it's not always, uh, we don't always have the capability to make like a slushy, but if we can put a ton of ice in like a Gatorade for him, mm-hmm. that definitely helps versus some of the guys just grab some Gatorade without it ever being in a cooler or having much ice in it. Yep. And then we'll have him put some some ice packs just uh, on his neck and, and around his chest to help mm-hmm. to help cool him as well. Yeah. 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 It seems ironic that he's on a, an ice-based sport and yet you're still f- having to find ways of cooling him down. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And any other specific nutrition issues that you could seem to face with the para ice hockey or any, you know, areas that you found surprising uh, when working with them? I think, you know, they're a winter sport. A lot of these guys, uh, some of them have had experience playing hockey prior to their injury. Mm-hmm. And, and many of them live at northern latitudes and in historically, you know, winter kind of uh, based states, a lot of our eastern and, and northern states. And so almost all of them, when I started working with them, were extreme, extreme vitamin D deficiency. Mm-hmm. So that's been a big one that we've continued to really hone in with them and, and worked really hard to support them and support that initiative consistently and which piggybacks off the brain health as well. Yeah. And uh, trying to support, support the brain health and the vitamin D and then really working on that hydration and electrolyte use and, and appropriateness of of how we're managing that, not just for a game, but also for training. I think the the other big thing is getting them to better understand their fueling challenges around only using their upper bodies. Yep. Granted, they have some massive upper bodies, but we have limited fuel supply um, in some of those smaller muscle groups compared to our able-bodied ice hockey players who are getting to utilize, you know, bigger lower body muscles. So mm-hmm. they're need to replenish those fuel sources, what we see is that happens much more quickly than some of our able-bodied sports, right? Where we have them doing some top-offs specifically with carbohydrates between every period versus them kind of thinking like, oh, I'm not that hungry. And it's like, okay, well, it's, it's not necessarily about hunger, right? But what's going on internally and what do you have to consider? And we've seen some guys have some really great results and are performing really, really well by uh, making some 
just even subtle changes to how they're approaching fueling at training and competition. Yep. And can I go back to the brain health side of things? What are some of the strategies that you're using to look after their brains and, and minimize the impact that concussions can have? Yeah, well, first and foremost, it's just a lot of education around healthy fats and anti-inflammatory foods that can be helpful for brain health. So thinking about a lot of our omega-3s and our fatty fish, and I have them all on a preventative lower dose fish oil Mm -hmm. as a hopeful neuroprotective effect as well, just considering many of them have a history of concussion and they're also in a again, a, a high risk contact sport. So we see it a lot. And then after they, if, if somebody does sustain a concussion and, and this is holds very true for sitting volleyball as well, because I think most people would probably be quite surprised with how often we see concussions in sitting volleyball, but mm. considering the proximity of the athlete's faces to where the net is yeah. and the shortened distance of the court and the high speed the really quick work to rest ratio that we see with sitting volleyball, we see a lot of concussions there too. So once an athlete sustained a concussion, we increase the the dose of, of fish oil to help them from a recovery standpoint. Mm-hmm. And then many of our sled hockey guys are using or on a creatine protocol, and we might change that a little bit as well uh, post-concussion. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So let's move to para-archery, which is a whole different kettle of fish. So can we talk a little bit about para-archery and the impairments that are involved there and what are some of your experiences with them? Yeah, you know, very different sports. Obviously, the the energy expenditure there is very different than hockey and and volleyball. Um, And we really have a variety of impairments here. So we have everyone from our really high level spinal cord injuries. We have amputees. We have those with CP. Mm-hmm. We have those with other neurological impairments. Um, so we really run the gamut there, mm-hmm. which can be quite, you know, this is, this is where it really becomes uh, how do we provide individual recommendations to help support each athlete and figure out what works best for them. Yeah thinking about the challenges just around the sport. So with archery, right, they might be outside competing and training for four, five, six hours. Mm. And if there's somebody that uh, mobilizes by a wheelchair, they actually have to stay on the shooting line versus their able-bodied counterparts or our other athletes who don't mobilize by a wheelchair and who have a prosthetic and can walk off the line. So they don't get to come back under the shade mm. like everybody else does between ends. So they're essentially just baking out there, sitting ducks, you know, yeah. in the sun for long periods of time or, or in any element. Sometimes it's cold and rainy, yeah. you know. So thinking about them and how do we maybe help manage some of those risk factors. Uh, we did a heat pill study with them using some cooling strategies a few years back um, in preparation for mm-hmm. The Tokyo games and realizing that the heat and humidity was going to be a huge challenge. And we were able to really give them some nice feedback and data about not just hydration, because for some of those that, you know, might struggle with regulating their, their body temps, but aren't necessarily sweating a ton, mm. what can we do to really help them cool themselves in that condition? So, you know, first and foremost, it's 
it's making sure they stay hydrated, right? But it might not be pushing a ton of volume of fluid. Secondly, what are some of the things we can have them do while they're shooting to stay cool? Mm -hmm. So um, what we've found is some of them will have, well, they all try and and keep like a umbrella for some shade cover, which helps, which they can put up between Mm -hmm. ends when somebody's going to pull their arrows. And then we'll have them use cold towels to wrap around their necks. Some will even dip like their hats in ice cold water. Mm -hmm. And then we'll also do like ice packs or bags of ice and and have them put them on their laps as well. And then we'll do slushies with them as well. So what we found is that even little sips, maybe a couple ounces every 15 minutes really help to maintain a core temperature that didn't put them at risk of, of overheating or really being of any kind of danger to their overall health. Mm-hmm. Some of them have definitely experienced they need to get off the line and, and go to the hospital because they've just overheated mm-hmm. to the point where they can't control it and uh, yeah. on their own. Um, yeah, we we just finished a podcast episode with Ben Stevenson who did some research on yeah. uh, heat and paratriathlon and, and yeah. he was talking a lot about the behavioural components of, of managing heat load and but that was more with athletes who were actually generating heat through an increasing heart Exercise. rate and, and things yeah. like that. Whereas our arteries are, are, are and shooting in, in similar in terms of they're not necessarily generating a lot of heat from the actual production of, of energy with their exercise. They're actually gener- getting heat exposure because of being out there in that environment. So the strategies that you need to use are a little bit different. Yes, absolutely. And the other big thing that we saw is just the athletes who, when we were doing this heat pill study, didn't do a great job of maybe they were really focused on what they were doing during, right? Mm -hmm. And during competition and during shooting and the lead up. But then after they were done, they kind of just forgot about everything. um, And they still had to come back the next day and shoot again. Mm -hmm. They actually started off the next day already at a higher core temperature. So they were, they really held a lot of carryover heat Mm -hmm. into that next day and and were kind of already starting off at a detriment, right? Because they're already playing catch up Mm -hmm. and it hasn't even gotten that hot out yet. So we really talked about that post-cooling recovery. You know, it's getting in the shade, getting in some climate controlled. Some of them really utilize the ice vests. Mm -hmm. They'll do some more slushies as well. And some of them, if the ice vests don't really uh, fit because of their chair or other impairments, then we just have them essentially like put a put an ice pack next to them, next to their skin. Sometimes it's just their their bodies, and we kind of. Uh, you know, we ace bandage them, we wrap them into it, essentially. Um, So we make our own kind of makeshift ice vest. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. And any other nutrition challenges that you've had with them? Yeah, I think the other big challenge for them, obviously, we compete internationally. And so there'll be some really long haul travel days. Mm -hmm. And if we're talking about athletes who have limited access. I mean, this applies to just during their sport to clean a bathroom that is, has some decent space for a wheelchair athlete to navigate and to get into and time, like physical time to actually get over to a bathroom, Mm -hmm. be able to use it and get back on the line without feeling like you're kind of sprinting all over the field, uh, a grass field, mind you. So 
Yeah. So mm-hmm. whether it's a travel day or just on the field of play, that bathroom access and that time has really been um, can be challenging. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly some of the athletes, you know, when I first started working with them, they'll purposely dehydrate themselves on a on a travel day to avoid using the bathroom. Mm-hmm. But then we see they obviously show up to competition really dehydrated and also put themselves at high risk for a UTI infection. And yeah. a lot of times just then feel terrible by the yeah. time they get to competition. Yeah. So, yeah. So we've really tried to do a better job of preparing them for travel, making some better plans, uh, educating them about how to use electrolytes in their favor yeah. when they're unable to take in, you know, as much fluid as we might like, but Hey, what's a, what's a happy medium here? So we're not putting you at risk and um, we're able to, to make a better plan to get you a bit more hydrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there's lots, lots of different components uh, that need to be considered. So what are your recommendations for athletes who are coming into any of those sports? That's a great question. Um, I think the biggest thing is to... First and foremost, maybe start to talk to some of the veterans that have been in the sport for quite a while. Try and see what some of the others are are doing. And then just start to consider maybe the three big kind of pieces. How's my hydration? Am I doing okay with my energy management and fueling? Do I think I could maybe make a better plan? Are there certain days where I'm struggling, I have a hard time? because I'm balancing a lot of things or I get really stressed around match day or game day. And then what are some challenges when it comes to that recovery period, whether that's what I'm choosing for food, whether that's enough downtime, Mm -hmm. whether that's, you know, other things that might uh, impair my recovery, such as a a lack of sleep. And so can you kind of consider these three, three main things? And are there any areas that, you know, you might need any kind of special individualized help from a dietitian with. Mm-hmm. Yep. And obviously we're hoping that they have access to a sports dietitian or can can actually oh, gain yeah. some access uh, even through a private sort of sports dietitian. Yes, that is the hope. You know, our field continues to grow and certainly will continue to grow in the Paris space as well. So just really exciting to see what will continue to happen, even among universities offering a little bit more access to adaptive athletes. Woo! That'd be nice. (laughs) Yeah. What a concept. Oh, yeah. And what about any recommendations that you have for coaches or other practitioners, whether they're sports dietitians or sports psychologists, sports medicine, physical therapies, those sorts of things, any recommendations for them? Yeah, you know, I think, and certainly when I was first, you know, starting in my career and stuff, when you start with a new team or a new program, just first going in and observing, I think you'll notice probably a million things you'll want to help them with, right? Man, like, wow, that's what they're eating, or that's mm-hmm. that's what the the menus look like for a training camp <laughs> or like a game day, or hey, we don't even focus on what we do for competition, we just focus on training camp or wow, like, do we even give the athletes water breaks? You know, so there's all these things that you might see that kind of are red flags when you're looking at it from a sport dietitian lens. But where do you think you could, you know, make the most sustainable impact? Mm -hmm. And how can you continue to help in that area so it doesn't 
it doesn't lag off versus trying to, you know, bite off too much than you can chew. Mm. And then I think it's really just developing relationships, not just with the individual athletes, but the staff as a whole, better understanding the sport, learning from the coaches, uh, understanding what they value. How can you collaborate with the other staff members that are available? What other things might you be able to learn from um, maybe the video analyst or somebody that's providing data in that area? What what might you be able to learn from an athletic trainer or a sports med doc that's been working with this team for quite a while? What do mm-hmm. they see? What What patterns have they seen? Because it might be something you haven't even considered yet. So I think it's really making sure that you're able to support not only the individual or the team things that you notice right away, but also how can you develop the relationships with the staff as a whole so you're providing something that you might not even consider or something that they value and really feel like Mm -hmm. the team consistently has been struggling in or could use some significant support. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great advice. Okay, Jackie, well, I think we've taken up a fair bit of your time and I know you've got many, many things that you're juggling on your plate. So let's just have a a little focus back on you for a second. So what's your favorite food? Oh, anything Italian, honestly. Give me a uh, a wood-burning Neapolitan pizza. You give me some homemade pasta and I'm in. (laughs) Do you make your own pasta? Oh, of course. Yeah, actually, um, my uh, mother-in-law got us this really cool pasta attachment for um, the holidays this this past year. So I was making some homemade pasta like every night for quite a while. I got real into it, but uh, (laughs) it was great. Yeah. Fabulous. Okay, well, great, Jackie. It's been terrific talking to you and it's I've got to say you've developed a lot and learned a lot over the last seven years and it's nice to be able to sit back and reflect on that because I think it it felt sometimes like the inundation of fire but you've worked your way through and and built a really good working relationship with each of the the programs that you work with so well done to you on that and we look forward to seeing what's more to come. Yeah, thanks, Liz, and and honestly, just appreciate your mentorship and guidance over the years, and still still look to it. You know, you know I, the bracelets that were popular. I don't know if it was just in the U.S., but that WWJD bracelet. Sometimes I'm like, what would Liz do? WWLD. <laughs> channel my my inner Liz broad. Like, how would Liz approach this? You know. So thanks for all you've done in the field and and kind of paving the way here and giving me the opportunity to be able to work with this population. Yeah. Oh, absolute pleasure. Great. Well, we'll hopefully catch up with you again soon and uh, yeah, keep up with the good work. Appreciate it. Thank you. I think Jackie's done a great job of highlighting the fact that even though there may be similar impairments between two sports, the things that you focus on in regards to what's going to have a big impact on their health, well-being and their consistency of training and consistency of performance could be quite different. And that means that looking specifically at the sport and the nuances of the athlete outside of even their impairment is really important to do. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, we're always happy to hear it. And I'm also interested in hearing about people that you'd like to have me speak to. Please join us next time when we talk to Cody Jung, who is a paracyclist with cerebral palsy.